we contemplate the wonder, the wisdom, the mystery of your word, that we might do so with increasing devotion to your glory and to our edification. Uh, for Jesus' sake, amen. We're in Acts chapter 4, and uh, I begin in this way. Uh, I'm sure every one of you, some in your younger years, some in your high school years, some in your college years, some as you began your young adult life and even into your senior years, have some of those memorable moments. Moments that a song or a person or an aroma or just a moment will bring back to you with uh, just amazing clarity and, and you'll feel it and see it and have the sense. <clears throat> I had one of those moments a number of years ago. I was on a, an assignment uh, with the 2nd Marine Air Wing at uh, Cherry Point and I was on my way there and I got to the airport and I went over and got my rental car and they gave me a map and we looked at the map and we're looking at the area and they were kind of pointing out various things and my eye lighted on Swan Quarter, North Carolina. And I said, Swan Quarter, North Carolina? Now I'm sure all of you know about Swan Quarter, North Carolina. I've heard stories about Swan Quarter, North Carolina. But I had, and I determined that before I left from that assignment, I was going to Swan Quarter, North Carolina, and see if this historical article I'd read was true. For you see, I had read <clears throat> that in 1876, the Methodists in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, wanted a church. They didn't have a church building, but they had a group of a meeting, and they began to look for a piece of property, like this beautiful piece of property you all have, and they began to want a church. And so they went to the landowner at this one spot downtown. It was a highland there on the coastal plains where they needed the, uh, the coast of North Carolina, where they needed that higher ground. And they asked him if he would be willing to sell them the property. And he was a prosperous landowner and had other plans for that business section. And so he declined their offer. But they found another place just down the road a ways on Oyster Creek Road, not quite as high, but it was an okay piece of property, and they began to build, as you all are beginning to build, a new building. They raised the funds, and they built this beautiful, and you've seen the pictures, one of these beautiful, serene-looking, white, wooden churches set up on the brick columns that you find in little towns across our country. And on September 16, 1876, they dedicated that building. The Methodist Episcopal Church South, it was called. Well, just a few days after they dedicated that church, a hurricane hit Pamlico Sound. And the wind and the rain and the waters rising overwhelmed and devastated the town. But an amazing thing happened. Instead of destroying this beautiful white little church, the floodwaters gently lifted this little white country church off its brick pillars and it began to float down Oyster Creek Road till it got down near Main Street and it bumped into the general store and took a turn, went two blocks and took another turn and then <clears throat> miraculously veered off and settled on a vacant old lot. <clears throat> the exact lot that they had originally wanted but that the landowner would not sell them. Now, there is rumor that 
a couple of days later, the pastor, I mean, the landowner with trembling hand brought the title and the deed to the pastor of the church. I don't know, but I do know that that church is still sitting there. <clears throat> and the sign out front says, the church that God moved. And they changed the name. <clears throat> Being good Methodists as they were, they changed the name from Methodist Episcopal Church South to Providence United Methodist Church. You see, that was a church building that God moved in 1876. But I want to talk to you this morning about a church that God moved, and we find that church described in Acts chapter 4 this morning. <clears throat> beginning at verse 31 is where we'll look, and there are two parentheses. The one parentheses at the beginning of 31, and the parentheses at the end of 33. <clears throat> the parentheses at the beginning says, when they had prayed. When they had prayed. Now listen, I want to tell you, I don't think <clears throat> if you're building a building and try to establish a ministry in this city, there's no more important thing than that parenthesis. Prayer was woven into the very woof and, and well, it was just everything for Christ. It enveloped his whole life. We read about his prayer. At his baptism, it says, and when he was praying, when he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, he's praying. When he comes back, he's praying. When he gets ready to choose the disciples, he's praying. Throughout his ministry, he's praying. When he gets ready to face the cross, he's praying. Again and again and again, he's praying. In John chapter 17, he's praying. That wonderful prayer that we have, the high priestly prayer of Christ. When he's on the cross, he's praying, Father, forgive them. As he's ascending up into heaven, he's praying, blessing his people. What a glorious picture. And now the scriptures tell us, right now, Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father praying for us. I have a friend in Oxford. By the way, John's given He must be a UT fan or something because uh, Oxford and Ole Miss is one of the most amazing places I've ever lived or been. I will tell you, the campus ministries and some of the churches in that town today are thrilling. You can't believe the things that are happening in the lives of students. When I first went to College Hill, I was a little younger. Um, and I had come from a church in a larger town where we had locks on the door, a security system, and the alarm would go off. It was really amazing. I'd usually get the call about 3 o'clock in the morning when the wind would blow and, and the doors would rattle and the police would meet me down there. But I came to College Hill and there were no locks on the door. This church was uh, about 150 years old and had been there a long time. And they had an organ and a beautiful piano and all this other stuff in the sanctuary. And I got with the elders one day and I said, you know, we probably need to lock the church and, and get uh, some kind of security system. And I never will forget, <clears throat> one of the elders said to me, son... This church hadn't been locked in 150 years. People don't pray on your schedule. We ain't never having locks on the doors. And I cannot tell you how many times I went out into that sanctuary, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes in the evening, and found people, often students, praying, worshiping, Meeting with God. Listen, my dear friends, 
when they had prayed, God did great things. It was not only woven into the warp and woof of Jesus' life and ministry. It was a priority and a principle in the life of the apostles. Again and again and again, we see them praying. They're meeting in the upper room praying. Now they come back from this imprisonment and they're praying. And throughout the whole of the New Testament, you find the apostles praying. If it's our priority, if that's a principle in our life, it's going to happen. For the reformers, prayer was essential. It was foundational. It was fundamental in their lives. The pastors I've known have recently been challenged to ask themselves, and I had a group of pastors who said to me, let's, let's make a little pact. Let's honestly, that's one of the hardest things about my ministry. I have some accountability partners, and they have several questions they're allowed to ask me. One of the questions is, how's your walk with Christ? Another one of the questions is, how's your marriage? Another one of the questions is, tell us about the ministry. How's the ministry going? Another one of the questions, since I have to raise support like MTW missionaries, and they know I hate to do that, they say, how's the money? And after they've asked me those four questions, they ask me the fifth question. Have you lied to me in answering any of the other four questions I just asked you? I, I just hate that one. But the fact of the matter is, is this group of pastors said, hey, let's get together and make a pact and share with each other how much time we're really spending in prayer. Now, I want to tell you, <clears throat> that'll put you to the test. So I'd just like to ask you this, this morning, how much time do you spend in prayer? Uh, I will tell you one other anecdotal thing about College Hill is a story that just impressed me greatly, and I would encourage you to pray for Tyler and, and for John. A story of a pastor recorded in, in one of the little history narratives that I read about the church. He was a pastor, and he was trying to be faithful in making pastoral calls. And he went out, and he was on his way to visit one of the families, and he walked up on the porch, and it was summertime, and the door was open, and the screen of the porch was there. And he was listening, and the family was having devotions as he got ready to knock on the door, and they were praying. And he heard them praying for him by name. He said he would never forget it. Going to a house of his parishioner to visit and comfort them, and they were praying for him. Let me just encourage you. You can't pray enough for John and Tyler and for the work of the church and the work of the kingdom here. You can't pray enough for one another. So that's one of the parentheses. Another one of the parentheses is at the end, and it said this, and I pray that this is true in your life. Great grace was upon them. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all our sin. Wow. Isn't that a glorious thought? Well, I mentioned that because grace is so important. And it's Reformation Day, by the way. So we know, I know John has gone over this and over this and over this. So you've probably heard it so many times. Say He's not going to say the Bible alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He's not going to talk about the solos with us. So I know John's done that, so I won't go over that. But I will tell you this story. And it was one that really grabbed a hold of me. I was in a class with a group of uh, seminary students down in Jackson, a class with R.C. Sproul. And R.C. was there one day. And, and um, he came in and he had this kind of troubled look on his face and he took out his notes and he said, now, I'm going to probably take a stand that, and make some statements today that's going to probably concern you all about my orthodoxy. And he kind of look, you know, and he said, 
But I've really come to understand and believe that we are saved by works. And then he paused. And I could see students, as myself, glancing around, kind of looking at each other. I could hear the pages of, of the Bible, people flipping through their Bible to find an, a verse that they were going to respond to the professor's statement, that we're saved by works. And then he said this, but I want you to understand as I say that, that we're saved by works. Christ's atoning work. Christ's work of fulfilling all the law for us that we could not fulfill. Christ's work of suffering the penalty due to our sin. We're saved by Christ's atoning work. And if we ever understand that by grace, through faith, in Christ's atoning work, we are saved, it will change our whole understanding of the greatness of God's grace. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He made us alive in Jesus Christ. By grace, we're saved through faith. That not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. What a glorious picture it was that day to realize how great God's grace was. And it says here, as God began to move His church, the people were praying, and God's grace was just lavished upon them. Oh, I pray that He would lavish His grace upon you this morning and you would have a deep understanding that He knows you by name. He knows the highs and the lows, the good and the bads, the ins and outs, and He has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's redeemed you by the precious blood of the Lamb. He's called you to be His own and promised you an eternal hope. Oh, what great grace He's given us. But now let's get to the points. What did he do to move this church? Not only were they praying, not only was his great great, but listen what happened. The next thing that happened, it says, when they had prayed, God shook the place. And then it says, not only did he shake the place where they were gathered, but he said, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So God shook the place. God filled them with the Holy Spirit. Then it says, God emboldened them to proclaim his word. And then it says... And God knit them together in unity and love, one heart and one soul. And then it says he stirred up in them hearts of compassion and kindness. And, and they were providing for those in needs and they were sharing what they had and selling things they had to take care of the people that were hurting. And then it says God empowered them to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a glorious picture we have of God moving a church. Boom, boom, boom. Look, he shook that place. Can you imagine? You're sitting there praying, gathered together after the persecution that had just come. And God begins to shake. The, can you imagine? Let's just imagine this morning. God begins to shake the place. It was a manifestation, a visceral manifestation of the sovereign, transcendent omnipotence of God so that these people, timid in their faith, might be renewed in their understanding of the greatness and the glory of God. We saw that in Exodus chapter 19, right before the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, 
when all of a sudden Moses and the people are gathered and the smoke is consuming the mountain and the mountain begins to tremble at the glory and the power of God. We see it in Isaiah when Isaiah is called in Isaiah chapter 6 and he has this vision and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne. And then it begins to talk about that. And then he sees the seraphim and then hears them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then it says, and the foundations began to shake. We see that same thing at the crucifixion when all of a sudden and the darkness comes and the ground begins to tremble with a great earthquake. And one of the centurions said, surely this was the Son of God. We see it that morning at the tomb when the tomb sealed by the stone and the women on their way and the ground begins to tremble. And the stone rolls away and the Savior is risen in power and glory. Oh, that this morning God might remind us in some way. He might shake us out of our complacency and our, our lives and our busyness and our hectic pace and remind us of His greatness and His glory. Remind us of His sovereign, transcendent omnipotence even in our lives, in the daily struggles, in the highs and the lows. But then he says he filled them with his Holy Spirit. Wow. How desperate we need an outpouring and a filling of his Spirit. Jesus had lived his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Read through and watch how the Holy Spirit touches his life. What? You say it every Sunday. Conceived by the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute. Here he is at his baptism. The Holy Spirit descends. Here he is led out into the wilderness in temptation, led by the Spirit. Here he is coming back in the power of the Spirit to begin His ministry. Over and over and over and again, we see the Spirit evidenced in His life. And then we see it here. Jesus promises He's going to send His Spirit to the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, He says, You shall receive power after the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. When the Spirit comes. Then we see in chapter 2 in Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. Then we see Peter standing up filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Now we see the disciples again filled. Paul says it this way, describing some of the things of the Spirit. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. And you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, giving us this beautiful picture of, of life in, in, in Ephesians and faith and ministry and testimony. He says, and, and don't be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That filling that daily comes to the people of God. How amazing is it that probably the most brilliant theological thinker in history, John Calvin, was described as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin knew that his life and his ministry, his thoughts, his preaching. I, I bear a little confession here. A few years ago, I was in Geneva. And I visited his church, uh, St. Peter or St. Pierre. And um, I was standing there and God was telling me about everything. And there's the pulpit. And there's the little rope blocking off the pulpit. And I thought, man, sure would like to stand in John Calvin's pulpit. I did not. I did not go through the rope and climb up there. But if I ever go again, I will. Um, 
It'd be, it's too much of a temptation. What a brilliant thinker. What a godly man. You read about his life in Aix-en-Provence where the seminary is, the faculty Jean Calvin that we are, are praying for, where Jim Boyce and Ed Clowney, some of our great PCA leaders, helped establish this seminary. And it's now training young French pastors to go out and plant churches and do ministry. It's a thrilling thing. But there in that church, we have one of those testimonies to Calvin's heart. A letter. The town of X was very, very, very Catholic. And during the Reformation, there was enormous persecution. At one time, one of the little uh, cities just near X was um, the home of the Pope. And there was a big battle over where it would be. Um, and finally, you know, Rome got it. And this guy was kind of, but they still have the, the big, big cathedral of the popes there. Uh, but it's a remarkable thing. The, the Protestants were under terrible persecution, and there's a letter. Uh, and they have part of the thing written up on the wall of what the letter said, and it was a, a letter of compassion and comfort that, that in his busy schedule, preaching and teaching and ministering, John Calvin wrote to the people of X to comfort them, the people in that church, and encourage them in their faith. It's an amazing thing. But here was a man who knew that it's the power of the Holy Spirit in his life that was changing everything. Now, also we see in the next thing, God emboldened them to proclaim his word. May I ask you a question this morning? How bold are you to proclaim his word? To speak his word? To talk to people about your faith? Well, you know, at my school, it's really not, you know... Well, if I mention anything in this class, this professor is going to be really undone. Well, you know, in the marketplace, they really don't encourage us to talk about our faith at work. Um, I will just have to tell you, my dear friends, we need God to embolden us to speak his word in a winsome way. At the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, but to bear witness to the faith that's in us of the testimony of this book that's his word, this remarkable book that is his truth. It's been described as a love letter to his people. You know, it's kind of amazing. I, I had the privilege uh, a little over a year and a half ago to, to go to Abu Dhabi in, in the United Arab Emirates as a missionary speaker. That was kind of interesting. I went to speak to this group, primarily children, and it was, a, it was a fascinating time. But they live in a world that's surrounded by Islam. And there's mosques everywhere. But here was this group of parents and children gathered together to study and memorize and sing God's Word. I want to tell you, I spoke to about 120 of the most excited children I have ever talked to. I mean, they were fired up. When they sang, our God is so big, so great, and so mighty, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. The mountains are here, the valleys are here, the sky is His handiwork too. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. They sang it with gusto and absolute assurance. When they sang the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, I stand alone on the Word of God. I mean, they stood up. I stand alone on the Word of God. They were so fired up. 
when I watched a couple of the children come and receive a Bible because they had gotten to the right age where they could have their own Bible, my heart was stirred. Uh-oh. It's time for me to be done. Um, gosh, once again, I haven't gotten anywhere near where I wanted to get. But uh, let, me, let me wrap this up by just taking those last three things that God knit them together in unity and love. God stirred up in them hearts of kindness and compassion. And God empowered them to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is not here. He is risen in glory and power. He lives. He lives. I know that Jesus lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. We know that. Bear witness to the power. There's an amazing thing that happens as we watch the gospel go forth. When people are knit together in unity and love, Uh, one, the chaplain at our seminary in France um, was converted by Francis Schaeffer. In fact, I think his, his most famous claim to fame is that, hey, not only was I converted by Schaeffer at Labrie, I was married by, my wife and I were married by Schaeffer at Labrie, and he loves to tell that story. And he would tell you, as would the pr president of this seminary, who was a, a colleague of uh, Francis Schaeffer's at Labrie, and he would say this, the apologetic message, the logical thinking that came out again and again and again, where Schaefer would have conversations with young people who were wrestling with all the issues and he would show them the logical outworking of their thinking and their presuppositions and their reason. And then he would point them to Christ and lead them to Christ. But they would not tell you that was the most important thing. They would tell you that the most important thing was that he did that Francis and Edith Schaefer did that in the context of love and grace. And so when God knits a group of people like Christ Presbyterian Church here together in unity and love, then we fulfill that message that Jesus gave the disciples at that Last Supper by this. Shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another? I know. You know. I'm going to quote Ray Steadman and Chuck Swindoll and probably a hundred other pastors who said it. To dwell up above with the people we love, that will be glory. But to live here below with the people we know, that's a different story. Um, and the fact is... It's not easy, but we have to pray day after day after day that that love and unity would shine in our hearts and our lives. It would flow through. And then he stirred up in them hearts of kindness and compassion. Listen, my friends, if ever we needed a world filled with kindness and compassion, it's today. I was stirred in Paris one morning when one of the men, Bruno, at uh, actually the father of of one of our seminary professors who's a member of this church in Paris that we're involved with. And um, he said, hey, why don't you go with me one day over to the Le Pain et la Parole, the, the place where we have the bread and the word. And this little, this little ministry serves 100 people, breakfast and supper, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday they have kind of a midday meal. Monday, they kind of have a time to reorganize. They have a kind of a closed closet and some showers and some plugs for people to connect with their iPhones and charge things. And, and uh, it's an amazing thing. And I watch these people as they lovingly and compassionately care for these people. And every time 
There was a short devotional always pointing the people to the wonderful, forgiving love of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ, the transforming power of Christ, the hope of the gospel as they served him the food, lovingly, graciously, kindly. Now, Pascal, who ran the place, did, after several visits, tell me he had discerned my spiritual gifts. Pascal said, Pastor, you can wash dishes with the best of them. You come anytime you want to be here. And, uh, it, but it was so exciting to see them reaching out, bringing in these people. Listen, it was a dark place. When you got off the metro at that stop, and you'd walk from the metro to the little ministry as you're walking. Now, this is one thing in the evening when you're walking and you see these ladies out. And they say, would you like some company? And you see these ladies who are struggling. But when you find them out there at 8 o'clock in the morning when you're going to do breakfast, you know they don't want to be there. And I asked Bruno, I said, can we talk to these people? He said, no, 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 men can't talk to them. First of all, they'll misunderstand what you want. Second of all, if their pimp sees it or their boss or whatever they call them, they could get in serious trouble. They have ladies who go out and, and do some of that ministry. But it was a sad and tragic place. And there were these homeless and hungry people who would gather for breakfast. And the love of Christ was manifest to those people moment by moment, day after day. And you know what was really wonderful? Pascal said, we've printed these cards. So, you know, you don't have to pass somebody who's on the street begging and feel guilty or give them money and you know where it's going or some, some other problem. He said, you can go hand them a card and this tells them where they can get food and clothes and medical care and check on other things. He said, hand them one of these cards and send them and they also get the gospel. What, I mean, when I see some of these compassion ministries at work, it just overwhelms me at God's goodness and grace. And they will know we're Christians by our love and our compassion. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And then the last thing is that we bear testimony to that glorious resurrection. I can't believe it happens because France is a secular country, very, very secular, struggling even more with it now in the midst of the invasion of refugees, many who are uh, of the Muslim faith. But in Aix-en-Provence, on Easter Sunday morning, there's a gathering at the Place de University. The university place there is kind of a little square right by where the university is, right where there's a little plaque that said, oh, look, Cezanne went to school here and studied law here. He didn't want to be in law school. He wanted to be an artist, but his father said he couldn't go to law school. But anyway, moving right along, on Easter Sunday morning after worship, the city gathers, and there are priests, and there are pastors, and there are some... Uh, some from uh, the Catholic Church, some from the uh, Orthodox Church, some from the Protestant Church, and some from independent churches, and they gather together. And we sing about three songs. They have three scripture readings. And then they have a proclamation on the university square of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in power and glory. And everybody's standing around looking at each other and saying, wait a minute, are we allowed to say this? Are we allowed to do this? And then the bells begin to peal all over the town. And you hear the power of the resurrection proclaimed on that glorious Easter Sunday. Oh, my dear friends, in 1876, by an act of God, God moved a church building in Swan Quarter, North Carolina. 
But my prayer is that in 2020 and 2021, God will move a church, the body of people, the saints, at Christ Presbyterian Church in a mighty way right here. Let's pray together.